Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent, We also have Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and down the line we have from Clifford Chance's partner there, Simon Gleeson. Today we'll be looking at the latest evidence on Basel III compliance among the world's banks. Secondly, a a look at Deutsche Bank as it struggles with some more woes. And finally to Portugal, where there's news about the fate of Novo Banco. First, though, to uh, that Basel III report. And Simon, thanks very much for joining us. You've been looking at uh, what the Basel Committee thinks of the compliance of the world's banks with these Basel III rules, both on capital and on liquidity. What do you think are the, the key findings there? Were there any surprises? Well, I mean, really, there are sort of there are now three heads of regulation. There's risk-based capital. There's Um, leverage and there's liquidity. I think what this tells us in a nutshell is that as far as the risk-based measures are concerned, the banks have got enough capital or they've got roughly as much as they think that the committee thinks they should have. As far as as leverage is concerned, the banks are getting themselves into position and as far as the LCR is concerned, the short-term liquidity requirement, they seem to be pretty much there. The NSFR is much more of a problem, but then that's further down the, further down the track, so we have a little bit more time to deal with that. That's the net stable funding ratio. That, that's yeah. the net stable funding ratio. But that, yeah, that, as you say, that has longer, a longer kind of time frame for int- introduction. Nonetheless, there are a few banks. I mean, the numbers are obviously small, but even with the, as you say, the LCR, the liquidity (coughs) coverage ratio, which is the the kind of short term measure, which is also uh, already in place as of January this year, the numbers of banks that are compliant with those rules are high. But there are nonetheless, I think, 2% of banks that are deemed to be non-compliant. Just interested in uh, what you think happens to, to those banks. They, they're breaching the rules. Um, do yep. they get slapped over the wrist, or what happens? It's always, it always a fascinating question, this, because, of course, you know, fining banks for breaching capital rules is, by definition, counterproductive, because the fine reduces their capital. Um, you know, the, the, the question of what you do with a non-compliant bank is kind of hard. Certainly, one of the ideas that floats around from time to time is that if the bank can't raise new capital privately, and quite a number of these may not be able to do that, then the question is, can we use bail-in and the new resolution tools to recapitalize them that way? But, of course, the answer to that is resolution was designed for failed banks using resolution tools on a perfectly solvent bank in order to nudge its capital up for up, up a bit is probably going to be very hard and will certainly generate lots of fascinating litigation. Um, 
But again, it's it's kind of hard to imagine the regulators going to these banks and saying you're a whisker under the um, requirements, so we're going to close you down completely tomorrow morning. So actually, these banks pose a real challenge for the regulators as well as for everyone else. It's a it's a key test, absolutely. Um, Laura, what's your reading of of these latest numbers? Um, in terms of the uh, LCR, certainly the ones who have failed or the ones who are currently below threshold will be interesting. I think a lot will probably depend on the areas that they're in. I mean, we haven't got any kind of geographic breakdown, but certainly if any of those are within the Eurozone countries, how the ECB deals with it will be very interesting because typically, even though there are these big global rules at the Basel level, there's also a lot of national discretion when it comes to actually implementing them and when it comes to actually dealing with banks who do fail to meet these rules. So it will be really interesting to see if the ECB takes a different line on it. I mean, it seems unlikely a bank would have to raise capital to meet a failing on the liquidity coverage ratio, but they may be forced to do other things faster faster than they had intended to do them. So there are some options open to the national regulators on that front. But overall, I mean, I think most banks have actually gotten there and they have actually gotten there very early. So these, so how it works is that they have to meet 60% of the requirements from the start of this year and then the full requirements by the start of 2019. Now, 85% of the overall banks had already met the full requirements of a full four years early. And the shortfall amongst the banks that haven't met it yet has actually halved. So it would have been just over 300 billion at the half year point last year. And now it's come down to just under 150 billion. So most banks have actually gotten there ahead of time. And that's something that we're seeing across the board Even when you have a very long lead in time, most of the big global banks get there early because their investors effectively force them to. So generally pretty, pretty good progress. Let me bring Caroline in here because the timing of this report, I mean, we get the updates obviously from these uh, regulators anyway, but this one is quite interestingly timed, isn't it, Caroline, in terms of the interest rate um, expectations that we have around uh, the Federal Reserve decision this week? Well, I think the thing I'd say is that it underlines the growing trend amongst policymakers and regulators to pretty much be confident that capital rules and requirements are, by and large, where they would like them to be. The banks are clearly broadly compliant with them. So they're putting capital to one side and the the new big concern for regulators and policymakers is liquidity. Where that becomes particularly marked is in the context of a US interest rate rise. It does tend to be more focused towards what will happen beyond the banking sector to asset managers, for instance. But the general concern is that an interest rate rise would bring to an end the bull run on the US uh, Treasuries market that we've seen for the last 30 years. Yeah, Simon, can I just bring you in for a final thought on that? Do you, do you have any kind of concerns around this particular area that the kind of capital well, and liquidity are not I, mean, I think it's important to remember the reason that the the reason that the BIS and so many other people are concerned about this is that if these if any of these ratios suddenly turn significantly worse. Um, the banks really only have two options. One of them is to raise more capital or to go and buy more assets. And the other is to shorten their loan books, shorten their um, lending commitments. And the concern is that that would potentially do real harm to the real economy. 
And, you know, very much as Caroline says, if um, the result of U.S. rate raising is a sort of wholesale reduction in the value of the assets the banks are required to hold as their liquidity pool, that will have a knock-on effect on levels of bank capital. And the concern is that that in turn could have a knock-on effect on the availability of bank credit to the real economy. So yeah, absolutely. It, it, it should be said, that, uh, of course, that the Bank for Inter- International Settlements in which the Basel Committee kind of uh, sits is all for an early rate rise, despite the concerns about the you know ructions it might cause. They're kind of more worried about longer term bubbles kind of um, developing in, in various areas of the market. It is clearly true, it's always been true, that we tend to be looking in the wrong direction when crises happen. You know, when, when, when we get a bubble, we tend to be worrying about a crash. But certainly, if you, um, you know, if you, if you deal, say, you deal with banks on a daily, daily basis, it really doesn't feel as if the banks are riding the crest of a bubble at the moment. This whole question of um, you know, credit, where does it come from? What we're seeing at the moment is still, to my mind, an economy recovering from a crash. So to translate that into an asset bubble, it certainly feels premature when you look at the way banks' businesses are actually operating and in particular levels of profitability. Well, we'll see what happens with rates uh, very soon. Thank you very much, Simon, for joining us. So on to our second topic of the day. Uh, It's been a, a busy week for Deutsche Bank, Martin. It has indeed. Uh, I think a lot of the activity um, is triggered by the fact that the new co-chief executive, John Cryan, met with the supervisory board for an off-site meeting in Bavaria over the weekend and discussed his plans for tweaking and adjusting and updating and putting the finishing touches to the 2020 strategic plan, the next five-year uh, strategic plan that uh, was already in place when he took over, or at least the the outlines of it were in place. And um, so that meeting, you know, obviously all of these plans being discussed, some of this has started to leak out. Um, some of it's been confirmed by the bank, some not. But in no particular order, uh, the interesting items that um, that have cropped up in the last few days include job cuts, so as well as spinning off uh, the post bank um, retail banking operation in Germany that Deutsche owns, um, which employs about fifteen thousand people. Um, we're hearing that the, the the new plan will include about eight thousand extra job cuts. So in total cutting about a quarter of the total staff at the group, which is pretty significant. Also, Deutsche is planning to exit investment banking operations in Russia, um, which is pretty dramatic. They've been operating in Russia for 130 years, more than 130 years, and they're one of the biggest foreign investment banks based in Russia. But they've been hit by a money laundering scandal which is being investigated by regulators all over the world in Russia. And the Russian investment banking market isn't what it was anyway since sanctions were imposed uh, on the country because of the Ukrainian conflagration. So Deutsche is planning to cut uh, between 100 and 200 people in Russia and will service Russian clients from offshore. 
So um, we'll parachute people in from London or Germany as required. They will still have operations in Russia, including um, transaction banking, but investment banking is going to be closed down, we think. And finally, there's an appointment to the board, pretty senior one. They, um, the German group has hired um, Richard Meddings to join its supervisory board and also to um, take over from John Cryan as chairman of its audit committee. Now, Richard Meddings, uh, if you remember, was finance director at Standard Chartered until the start of last year. So 18 months ago, he stepped down from Standchart, but he's a pretty well-respected banker. He's he's working as on on as a non-executive director uh, at the Treasury at the moment, and has also taken a non-executive position at Legal and General. But he's previously worked for Barclays and and Credit Suisse, and he interestingly knows. John Cryan from John Cryan's time at Temasek, which was the biggest investor in Standard Chartered, and, and um, Richard Meddings was responsible for um, interacting with shareholders in his role as CFO. So, and uh, John Cryan was head of Europe, so would have had they would have had a lot of interaction over Temasek's big stake in Standard Chartered. They know each other well, but interesting that they chose another Brit to for that important job of chairing the audit committee. But um, Deutsche is going through pretty significant changes and um, we expect John Cryan to come out with um, his finalised detailed strategic plan um, around October time um, when we will hear more about all of this. Laura can I just bring you in briefly on this Uh, what are your thoughts on this kind of trio of of news? I guess Deutsche had a lot of decisions to make in the run-up to the um, strategy announcement, which they promised before the end of October. Their last strategy announcement was a total disaster from the bank's perspective. So they need to be very convincing this time and they need to be very good. And I think that it's probably not too bad for the bank that some of the that some of this news is actually coming out early because expectation management is going to be a big part of how this actually plays out on the day. So you can kind of see how it helps their cause to have some of this coming out earlier and it's all broadly sensible stuff. I mean, appointing someone like the new audit chair makes sense. He is a very credible international figure um, in terms of the Russian operation. You can obviously see why they would have an incentive to do that given the fact that they're facing all of these issues and it has been a very slow market recently. Then we think about the job cuts. I mean, you will be eliminating jobs in the post-bank situation anyway. So those jobs aren't going to be cut. They're just going to move outside of Deutsche Bank and that will be 15,000. The other 8,000 sounds broadly sensible, could be higher, could be a little bit lower. But given a bank the size of Deutsche's and given their need to make these very large cost cuts to what has become a very bloated cost base, that also makes sense. So I think that they will have to tell us a lot more on the day in terms of the, I mean, the big focus on the day will be uh, around the cost cuts and not just in terms of how many people you cut, but actually how you can demonstrate that you're going to get the cost income ratio, which is one of the worst within all the European banks, how you're going to actually reduce that year on year, because there was a big five year target last time. People don't actually want to see that. They want to see what are you going to do next year? What are you going to do the year after that? Because a lot can happen in five years and it's very hard to hold a bank to account to those kind of targets. So I think we need a lot more granularity. Yeah, the detail is is really what was lacking in that first plan, as you say. And uh, one of the one of the big reasons why investors lost faith uh, yeah. with Andrew Jane, Mr. Crime's predecessor. Uh, we will keep a close watch on, uh, on that plan as it evolves. Um, let's go to our final topic for the day. Uh, another one for you, Martin. Um, in Portugal, Nova... Novo Banco, which was supposed to have been sold by now. The auction process has been axed. Uh, what's going to happen? At the time of this podcast, we have, uh, we have learned that the 
Central Bank of Portugal has taken the decision to suspend the auction, essentially pulling the rug from underneath it. Uh, the reason for this is partly they didn't get the high enough bids, but also the, the bids that they did receive were ex- excessively conditional. And I think there was just they were rushing to get this done before two things. One, before the Portuguese general elections next month, and also before the European Central Bank's stress test on Novo Banco, which is um, which is still ongoing, or we haven't got the results of it yet, but the results are expected within weeks, I'm told. So they were hoping to, to agree a sale before that, and that's just not happened. In the end, all of this uncertainty meant that the bids they did get were excessively conditional, um, you know, both because of, you know, they, they, they were conditional on however much capital was going to have to be put in to solve the um, requirements of the stress test. Uh, There was also conditionality over, I understand, legal claims, potential legal claims from Nova Banco's pre-bailout owners and creditors. And, you know, they just they just couldn't um, get a solid enough uh, offer from the three. The three bidders that were left were two of them were Chinese um, and Bang uh, insurance and Fosun International, both sort of insurance-based conglomerates from China that have been buying a lot of assets in Europe, including financial ones, um, mainly insurance, and Apollo Global Management, which is one of the world's biggest private equity groups specialising in distressed debt and uh, distressed situations. So in the end, none of those bids quite worked. I think what's going to happen now is is going to wait for the election, new government elected, wait for the stress tests, then that will come out with a number that the bank is short of in in terms of capital. And there will probably then run another process, a different process to raise capital in the private markets, probably by selling a minority stake to either private equity or a strategic investor. Now, the reason this matters is um, partly it's we're sort of seeing the return of this bank from being bailed out back to to private sector ownership because at the moment it's owned by a resolution fund that's funded with money from the Portuguese government. And just to remind people, obviously, this is the good bank, so-called good bank, that was spun out of the former Banco Espirito Santo, which itself was laid low by corruption scandal. Yeah. And it is still Portugal's biggest high street bank, I think. Uh, I think Novo Banco, the good bank, is yeah. the third biggest right. now. It was Banco Espirito Santo, the whole thing was the biggest. Was the biggest right. But you've now got the bad bank, which has got all the bad assets in it, and the Novo Banco, which is the good bank that they're trying to sell. And uh, this money that the government put in to save Novo Banco is a loan that must be repaid and the the owners of the re- resolution fund are all the other banks so the the share prices of the other portuguese banks have been hit in the last few days amid worries about the fate of this auction because any shortfall in the amount raised from selling Novo Banco and the amount they have to repay to the Portuguese government will fall on the other banks in terms of losses and that's not they aren't exactly in the the, the greatest of health themselves the other Portuguese banks so I think there's great concern not to impose too great a losses on them. 
But I think that the size of, of the bank does raise an important point because even if it is only the third biggest bank, it's still a large systemic bank within Portugal. So I think that when they are evaluating these bids, it isn't just about how much they get. It's actually about who they end up selling it to. And they ultimately want to sell it to a secure owner. They would ideally like a person who will hold it for the longer term. So you can see why it might be a more stable point at this stage just to go and list some of it on the stock market and just do it that way rather than, say, selling it to someone who maybe only wants to own it for three or four years before they then sell it on again. And obviously a big test as well for the integrity of the new banking system, cross-border banking system in the Eurozone, uh, overseen ultimately by the ECB. So uh, one definitely worth watching. Um, We should end things there. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Laura here in the studio and also uh, Simon Gleeson from Clifford Chance. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Alex Wisniewska. Until next week, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.